0: Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. Well, I teach communication at Biola University, so I'm always interested in verses that have to do with communication. And one of my favorite would be Proverbs 18.21 that says, life and death is in the power of the tongue. Boy, that's really true. Every four years as America, we get an exercise in what it looks like to speak death, and that is the, our political process. And it's gotten worse this year. I teach rhetoric, which is the study of political discourse, how politicians talk to each other and how they talk to us. And it's just gotten out of hand the last 15, 20 years. I mean, this year, you have people calling each other idiots, stupid, incompetent, cowards, unpatriotic. One uh, candidate was so frustrated, he just swore at another person in primetime television. So... We live in what we call negative communication spirals. And let's not put all the onus on politicians, right? I mean, I think most of us could think of a time with our spouse that we were in a negative communication climate. We could think of family members. We can think of people we work with, neighbors. We can think of people we go to church with, right? You're just kind of locked into a negative communication spiral. So here's what I want to do this morning. First, let me define what a communication spiral is. Second, let's take a look at a passage from 1 Peter where Peter actually identifies what a negative communication spiral looks like and gives us some really interesting advice of how to break that. And then let's talk about an application that we can do as we walk out of here into real life relationships. So I first learned about communication spirals, not in grad school, but for my older brother, Bob. Bob was a football player. He played college football. I was the youngest. You always had that weird dynamic, oldest and youngest. And one day, we're playing catch in the backyard, right? We're just throwing around the baseball. and uh, But, you know, we're guys, and so eventually, Bob throws a zinger. You know what a zinger is? It's like a inappropriate fastball, you know? So we're just kind of playing catch, and all of a sudden, the zinger comes, and it's like... And I'm like, ouch. Now, what do you say to your older linebacker brother at that point? Do you say, Bob, Bob, we were playing catch. We were, we were making a memory. And you <laughs> y- y- you threw that ball hard. I think inappropriately hard. Right? Do you say any of that to your linebacker brother? And I was like, ha, ha, ha. And the ball just comes faster and harder. That's what we call a negative communication spiral. So if you're sarcastic to me, it's not that I'm just sarcastic back to you. I match it and increase it just a little bit. Right? So you yell at me. You raise your voice to me. I raise my voice right back to you, but just up it just a little bit. By the way, it can be nonverbals. The silent treatment, right? Minimal communication, if any communication. Boy, I was a theater major. I had mime classes, okay? I can do the silent treatment. So when you're in a negative communication climate, what do you do? Well, the first thing is you have to recognize that you're in this climate, right? So here's what Peter does in a very interesting passage in 1 Peter. Peter says, here's how I want the church to act then I'm going to give you a test to see if you're really doing it. So here's an interesting passage from 1 Peter. In 1 Peter 3.8, Peter says this, To sum up, let all be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Now what's interesting about this passage Peter has a dual audience in mind. He's saying, Christians, I want you to treat each other this way. And non-Christians, outside the Christian community, Christians, I want you to treat them in the exact same way. So take a look at this verse. I often give this to my Biola students as a checklist to see how are you doing in your walk with God. So let all be harmonious, sympathetic. In the Greek, that word sympathetic, it means to feel with. So as you're talking to a person, it's not that you have to agree with him or her, but are you at least sympathetic to his or her circumstances, right? They come from this type of family background. They come from this type of economic background. Uh, they come from this part of the country. They have these influencers that are causing them to act in a way that you might find annoying. So being sympathetic is, I recognize your situation, and I'm actually Feeling with you as you've had to negotiate those certain situations. Are we sympathetic to the people we disagree with? And then he goes on to say Are you kind hearted? Right? We're not enemies. If you watch today's political process, you tend to think we're enemies. No, we're all Americans trying to do this very interesting test called democracy. We all belong to the same church. We all belong to the same community. Are we kind-hearted and brotherly towards each other? I love that he sticks in humble in spirit. Right? Humble in spirit means you're not always right. There's times that you're wrong. Boy, a huge occupational hazard of being a professor is I just tend to think I'm always right. I'm not even going to look at the biola faculty in the front because I don't want to make them feel bad for the fact that they're wrong. <laughs> you know, um, but you know, I just, t- and by the way, it doesn't even matter if the facts aren't on my side. That does does not slow me down at all. I'll I'll be arguing for something and my kids will say something really annoying. Like, you know, I don't think that's true. Hey, don't interrupt. I'm making a point. My kids have started to call those dad facts, right? Facts that are only true for dad. They're not true anywhere else. But dad is saying it with great conviction. So here's what Peter is saying. I want this to be true of you. Now, if I were to actually ask you to rate yourself on each one of these qualities, it'd be very interesting to get your response. How do you think you're doing? Are you harmonious, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit? Peter says, okay, that's fine for you to think that, but let me give you a test case by which it surfaces whether you're actually having those kind of qualities, right? And here's what it is. Not returning evil for evil... Or insult for insult. This is what Peter says. When you are insulted. right? And by the way, he's acknowledging it's an insult. He's acknowledging that what that person said to you was not appropriate. How they said it wasn't appropriate. right? He even extends evil to this. And he says, in that moment when you're insulted, what reaction do you have? Does sympathy fly out the window? Are you no longer kind-hearted? Are you no longer brotherly? Because I've just been insulted. We call this a 50-50 performance relationship, right? Um, 50-50 performance, we love this as Americans. If I hire you to paint my house, but one thing I don't do is I don't give you all the money up front, right? Because I'm going to judge how well you painted my house, right? If you do a really crummy job, guess what? I'm not giving you the rest of the money. I will judge you on the kind of job that we do. Boy, we do that in relationships, My wife and I speak at marriage conferences, right? And at marriage conferences, couples will say, listen, I'll be kind to you if you're kind to me, right? If you raise your voice to me, I'm raising my voice to you. If you don't show affection to me, I'm not going to show affection to you because you just flat out don't deserve it. A 50-50 performance relationship. It is so natural that Peter says, what you do in the moment that you're insulted shows me if you're kind, sympathetic, brotherly, and humble in spirit. Now, here's my observation about the church we have been caught and sucked into a negative communication spiral with non-Christians. We call it a culture war. Daniel Taylor, one of the Christian writers I like a lot, he made this interesting observation. The sad truth is that in our battle with a hostile culture, we have adopted the cultural tactics. We fight ugliness with ugliness, distortion with distortion, sarcasm with sarcasm. Hey, make fun of my religious beliefs, I'll make fun of your liberal beliefs, right? You make fun of me on primetime television, I'll make fun of you on primetime television, right? You attack me, I attack you, that's just how it is. We're all adults, we'll roll up our rhetorical sleeves, and I will treat you exactly like you treat me. And Peter says, no. No, that's not how the church is to do it. Now, I'm about to go to a passage. Peter is very interesting. He's about to advocate something that Freud found so offensive that Sigmund Freud rejected Christianity because of what you're about to hear. Freud, in a book called Civilization and Its Discontents, in talking about the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, turn the other cheek, When you're slapped, I want you to turn the other cheek. Freud found that utterly offensive. That if we did that as people, we'd literally walk on each other and it'd be chaos. So Freud rejected it. Peter, no doubt echoing Jesus, has a very interesting advice to us when you're insulted. And this is what Peter says. But giving a blessing instead. I wish you could see your faces right now. Some of you are like, I'm sorry, that, that's got to be a misprint. It's like, what translation is that? But giving a... So wait a minute. So I'm insulted, right? You just insulted me. Spouse, coworker, neighbor, church member, you insulted me. I'm supposed to do what? I'm supposed to reward you for the insult? I'm, I'm supposed to bless you? In the Greek, that word bless, we get the English word eulogize from that word. To speak well of a person. Yeah, my reaction exactly. It's like, what? How how, how can I... Now, you understand why Freud said what he said. That's ridiculous. That means I'm going to get trampled on by you because you're insulting me. Now, listen, Peter understands what he just said was massively counterintuitive, right? So he's going to have to give us motivation. He offers his quick motivation, and then he goes on. You'll notice in your Bibles that he quotes Psalm 34. That's why it's in all caps in your Bible. So he gives a quick motivation of why you should do this. By the way, the dating of 1 Peter is incredibly important. Most scholars will date 1 Peter right around AD 64 before Nero's persecution. When the bloodiest persecutions of the church, Peter is saying, when somebody does evil to you, I want you to bless them. When they insult you, I want you to bless them. Preparing the church for one of the most severe persecutions the church would ever face. So knowing that, Peter gives his quick um, motivation and then he goes to Psalm 34. This is what Peter says. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Now, what's the blessing you're going to inherit if you actually bless a person who insults you, right? Well, then he goes to Psalm 34, you'll notice in your Bibles, it says, let him who means to love life and see good days do these things. Now, the good days is interesting. Is it quantitative or qualitative? In other words, if you bless those who insult you, you're going to live longer quantitative or you're going to live a certain quality of life. I think it's fairly obvious that he means qualitative, not quantitative. Why? Nero's persecution is coming, and some people are just going to die. They're going to have shorter lives, not longer lives, because we're blessing those who insult them. I think what he's saying is you will have a certain experience of life if you do what God asks you to do, bless those who insult you. Notice what Psalm 34 says, verse 8. Oh, taste the Lord and see that he is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Now, if you're like me, you go through seasons of life with God, right? There's sometimes God is incredibly present, and there's other seasons that St. John of the Cross would call the dark night of the soul, right? Where God seems very far away from you. Now, let me be really honest, uh, knowing I'm I'm, I'm noticing all the Biola faculty and even key administrators, and even higher than an administrator, my liege, Barry Corey. Um, So... I would say that I've gotten into the rut where I don't experience God as much as I used to. Now, why? Because I don't think I take steps of faith as much as I used to, right? Now I've got, I'm married, I have three kids, I have a job, a mortgage, right? So I, life is pretty predictable, I'm not running off and doing crazy, wild things. So I think my, my walk with God sometimes gets really flat because I don't step out in faith. Now, when I'm talking about stepping out in faith, I don't mean sell everything and become a sculptor or, you know, something like that. I'm saying in your relationships, God is saying, there's plenty of room for steps of faith. And when you're insulted, I want you to step out in faith because every part of your being is going to be resistant to this, right? When you're insulted, God says, no, you trust me in this moment, and I promise you I'll be present. You can't, Freud was right, you can't do this on your own. God is going to have to infuse you with his presence and his power for you to do what what Peter is about to advocate. Now, fortunately, in Psalm 34, which he's quoting, there are four things we are to do when you're insulted. Here we go. Number one refrain, he quotes Psalm 34, refrain your tongue from speaking evil. Oh, isn't that true? Somebody says something. It's snarky. It's sarcastic. You raised your voice to me. And immediately you have a response locked and loaded. Right? I did stand-up comedy in college. I'm locked and loaded. Right? I'm just like, oh, I'll say you're coming from you. That is just rich. You just, right? And it's right there. Here's first thing Peter says stop what you're about to say. Stop it. Do not say what you're about to say. That's really hard. Remember, the very fires of hell, James says, comes through the tongue, right? So what you're about to say, don't say it. It gets even more complicated than that. My psychologist friends tell me, yeah, saying it is bad, but thinking it is equally bad. We've all had that, right? How many times have you had a conversation with your spouse and you never uttered a word? That teenage son, you know, you've had the conversation, right? As they're walking out the door, you're just sitting there going, this, 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 this. Well, psychologists call that emotional contagion. Those negative thoughts you have actually do bleed out into the relationship and poison the relationship. So the first thing Peter is saying is, do not say what you're about to say. Some of us, that's going to be really hard because we tend to be quick-witted. Second, Peter says... Turn away from evil. What you're about to do, what you wanted to do to that person, give them the look, right? I mean, I've been married now for a long time. I just know not to say really um, hurtful things to my wife or get mad or raise my voice. I just know not to do that, right? But there are subtle things, right? 63 to 93% of all communication is nonverbal. So my wife will say something and I'm annoyed. I'm not going to say I'm annoyed. But here's what I do. I love it. I just raise my glasses up. Start to say something, but don't finish it and mumble it. Right? And it's just, just, oh, I wish I, okay. (laughs) What's beautiful about that is plausible deniability. If she says to me, oh, what is that? I said, "What? I'm, I'm, I'm actually praying for you. Now, now, if this is all Peter asked, if this is all he asked us to do, I think some of us could just white knuckle it. I think some of us could actually pull this off with that discipline. I'm not going to say something and I'm not going to do something. I'm just going to, right? That is not what Peter's advocating. Freud would have no problem with this whatsoever. The next two that come from Psalm 34 are brutal. And this is the next one. Oh, don't, don't even look at the screen. This is going to ruin your day and you're going to feel like Freud. This is just kind of wacko. Okay, you've been insulted and you are supposed to. That's just kind of crazy, right? We share this at family life marriage conferences. We share this. And a couple's like, that's, that's crazy. So, so a couple actually said this to me. Let me get this straight. We're at the marriage conference, right? It's over. We're not even out of the parking lot yet. We're not even out of the parking lot of a marriage conference. And my spouse says something sarcastic or, or, or says something hurtful. I'm supposed to what? Not say anything, not do anything bad. But now I'm supposed to do good? What, what would that even look like? And I suggested to this couple, well, as you as you're, don't throw the manual out the window, okay? As you're driving out, lean over, right? Everything you want to say, don't say lean over, take your spouse's hand, and say to him or her, thank you for going to the conference with me. Now, you want to say, and it's not doing any good, okay? (laughs) Right? I, I think that's a blessing to that person, okay? Then he says, now this is convicting as well, let him seek peace and pursue it. What does he mean by that? Who are, the children, who are the sons of God, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Who are the sons of God? The peacemakers. Jesus is saying this. If you're spiritually mature, I want you to seek the peace. Remember that interesting passage in Galatians 6.1? Paul says this. If there's a person in a trespass, right? They're guilty. It's sin. No question. You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. So guess what? If you've been a Christian for a while, God is saying, you're my spiritual ones, technically. I want you to approach that person. Right? Now, maybe it's your dad. And you say, well, no, it's my dad. He should approach me. Okay, granted, but that's not happening. You who are spiritual, go. Right? It's my, it's my uh, coworker. And by the way, that person's ahead of me. It's my manager. They should come to me. Fine. But you who are spiritual, go to them. You're the ones who are supposed to pick up the phone call and make the first phone call. You are. This kept me from my dad for years. I had a strange relationship with my dad. And I always got stuck. Even though I was a spiritual Christian, my dad was barely a Christian. I kept saying, but he's my dad. He should pursue me. And God was like, okay, noted. In a perfect world it should be your dad. Guess what? It's not a perfect world. You are on staff of Campus Crusade for Christ. You are you lead Bible studies. You go call your dad. Oh, well, that's just not fair. Those of you who are sympathetic, kind-hearted, brotherly, right? Where's all that? Well, come no, oh, come on. I mean, it's a test to see where are we with God? Now, you better believe he's going to provide motivation for this, right? Peter knows what he's asking, especially if this is before Nero's persecution. You need motivation to do this. Peter gives us... Three powerful forms of motivation. Now, if you want to know how to do this on a practical level, I mean, we're moving at light speed because this is a 30-minute sermon. I- I'm not trying to hawk books, but my book, I Beg to Differ, is at the coffee shop, and I go into great detail of how to actually do this in practical kind of ways. So again, if you want, if you care about the Muehlhoff family, the kids, just, it's, for, it's for sale. <laughs> Hair treatments are expensive. They're just... All right, so Peter... Peter gives us motivation via Psalm 34. And this is what the psalmist says being co-opted by Peter. First, for the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. Hey, God knows exactly what's going on. He sees what's going on. He knows that you have been legitimately insulted. You've been hurt. Now, what's your response? God's watching. So all three of my kids played football. Two of my kids played high school football at Olinda. We had this one mom. She was great. Uh, When her son would do a play on the field during a game, she would literally stand up. She had one of these booming voices. And she would shout, I see you. (laughs) And we're like, and we hear you. I mean, we yes. (laughs) But you know what? He would actually hear it. And he would turn up periodically and look in the stands. Every time he did a great play, she would shout, I see you. I think that's exactly what the psalmist is saying. Hey, I know you're in this hard situation. I know you've been legitimately insulted. And God says, and I see you doing what I'm asking you to do. Now, is the motivation of God enough, though? Right? Am I really, is the motivation of God the only thing I'm getting out of this? Because if that's true, God's motivation, God's affirmation doesn't mean a whole lot to me, so I'm going to insult you as you insult me. Boy, that's a diagnostic test to see if God's pleasure is enough for you to be obedient. Second thing, he says, his ears attend to their prayers. You know when you're in a conversation, that word attend in the Greek, you know when you're in a conversation and you know you got somebody's attention because they kind of lean in to the conversation, Right? Uh, Just remember when you were dating, right? And that happened all the... Oh, that was so interesting. (laughs) No, go on. More, more. Oh. Right? When you were dating, now that you're married, it's like, what are you even saying? (laughs) Okay? Um, But you know that moment when you lean into a conversation? That's what the psalmist is saying. So when you pray in these really hard situations, and by the way, I don't doubt you're praying a ton if you're really going to try to bless a person who just insulted you, God leans into those prayers. Not that he doesn't hear other prayers, but he's, I think, especially going to show you his presence in those moments when you're praying, God, help me to bless a person who doesn't deserve it. And then here's here's the important one. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Listen, God is not going to let that person just get away with it. See, we often want God to just zap a person, right? They're acting inappropriately. God, change them. And God is saying, no, I will change them. But guess what? You're going to be the change agent. Your blessing, that person, is the mechanism I'm going to use to actually change their heart. Now, do you want to be the mechanism? That's an interesting question. God is not letting anybody get away with anything. Nobody treats his kids that way, right? But God is going to use your kind actions. That's why Paul would say, when your enemy is hungry, do something counterintuitive. Feed your enemy. Give them something to drink. Why? Burning coals of conviction will rest upon the heads of your enemies and will get action, right? Now, how does this actually work in practice? right? Well, let me give you an example. When I was in grad school, I was at UNC Chapel Hill, great school. I was by far the most conservative religious person in the department. There was not even anybody close to me, right? So think of every social issue. I was the lone wolf representing a conservative perspective. Uh, Some people tolerated it. Some people liked me, and some people just flat out didn't like me. Sharon was one of them. Now, I've changed her name, Sharon was a grad student, a PhD student, brilliant, and just was not amused by my conservative Christianity. Have you ever walked in a room and conversation stopped when you walked in? Or worse, you walk in and people start to laugh and look at you when you walk in. Well, Sharon was talking negatively about me every chance, even to faculty. A friend of mine who wasn't a Christian grabbed me one day and said, man, what did you do to Sharon? She is like, it is relentless. It is relentless what she's saying to you behind your back. And I got mad. I was like, how dare you? We're supposed to be grad students. We're, we're grad PhD communication students. And this is not appropriate. And why don't you just act like an adult and why don't you apply some of the stuff you teach students? All of that went through my mind and I was locked and loaded and ready to go. Right? Then don't you hate it when the Holy Spirit shows up? So one day, we had one of the top departments in the entire country. We had a copier that was possessed by Satan. We had a copier that did not work. It was crazy. So Sharon, if you're a PhD student, every year you get evaluated by faculty, and it's hugely important whether you get your PhD. Well, Sharon was going to teach a three-hour class. There was no break, and then she was teaching the class in which she was going to get evaluated. You had to hand them packets of notes so that they could review your notes as you were lecturing. Sharon is now late to her first class because the copier just won't work. She is literally kicking the copier and dropping Profanity everywhere. And uh, I'm sitting there, and I got to be honest with you, I'm just sitting there. And I wanted to say, Sharon, karma. Karma. Oh, I'm so sorry. I would love to know what she just did. I'm sorry. Okay, so I'm um, karma. And then the Holy Spirit shows up. And I'm like, you, and the Holy Spirit, honestly, I, I, I've had maybe a handful of times in my life that I felt like God really convicted me. I mean, to the point that I, I just, you, you cannot not do what the Holy Spirit is saying. And that was one of them. And the Holy Spirit said, you need to go bless that woman and help her. <coughs> why, would I, why would I do that? And then you hear Jesus. Oh, that was a low blow, Jesus. <laughs> I literally wanted to r- run out the clock. Is there a chance the second coming could happen <laughs> in the next few minutes? So I got up. I walked over to Sharon. I said, hey, Sharon, can I help? And she turned around, looked at me, saw who it was, and she literally said, no. And I was like, fine. <laughs> and the Holy Spirit's like, you've got to be thicker skinned than that. If you're going to bless those who insult you, you've got to be a little thick. If you're going to love your enemy, you've got to be a little thicker skinned than that. Get back in there. I said, Sharon, seriously, what can, what can I do? She goes, It's a stupid copier. I can't. No, I'm late to class and I gotta, I'm getting evaluated. What can I do? I said, Sharon, I will do it. I, I will do it. I'll, I'll collate everything. I'll do it. There was this moment where she looked at me like, You know what? We both know I've been talking behind your back, and this is a moment you could really get me. Because I need this stuff collated. I have no time. And are you really going to do this? And I said, Sharon, I will do it. She goes, Tim, i got to have it by this time. And it's got to be at this room. I said, Sharon, done. She said, well, OK, good luck with the copier. And she walked away. Now, listen, I took my credit card. I went to Kinko's. I have faith. I don't have that much faith. OK, that copier. <laughs> right, so I went to, I went to Kinko's plop that thing down, got them collated. I show up at that room. I said, Sharon, here you go. And hey, I'm praying for you. And she just looked at me and she said, thank you. Now, listen, we didn't become best buddies after that, but it was different. We said hi to each other in the mornings. I asked her, how did teaching go? She said, well, I think it went okay. Hey, I'm sure it went good. I've heard great things about your teaching. And I had, I'd heard great things about her teaching. So guess what? Uh, She said, how can I repay you? I said, Sharon, we're all grad students. We're all in this together. You don't need to repay me. Well, one day there was a Starbucks card. And I said to her, hey, I'm going to go get Starbucks. Do you want anything? She said, no, 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 man. Thanks for helping me again. It changed. And God is saying, do you trust me? I know what's going on in all of your relationships. I know if you're locked into a negative communication spiral. And I will act will you be the change agent? And those of you who are spiritual, you should be the ones who seek peace and pursue it. Now, Peter gives us one last motivation, which leads into a very practical moment we're about to do. Here's what he does. He quotes and refers to Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Jesus is our model. So look what he says. While being reviled, he, Jesus did not revile in return. He's talking about him being crucified. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Our whole sermon is in that passage. While being reviled, the Son of God did not revile in return. Are you not glad I'm not Christ? If I were Jesus, I tell you what, the first time somebody mocked me Jesus, if you're the son of God, then come down from the cross. Yeah, I'm coming down. And I'm kicking your butt. Sorry, that's the New Living Translation. But what held him there? What held Jesus on the cross? Dying for mocking soldiers. Dying for a religious institution that crucified him. What kept him there? Book of Hebrews tells us, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What's the joy? Two things. One, the affirmation of the Father. God is saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. Second, you kept him on the cross. He saw every one of you. By the way, he died for the people that were insulted, and he died for the people doing the insulting. He died for everybody, everybody, past, present, future. You kept him on the cross. Then you know what he did? He entrusted himself, Peter says, to him who judges righteously. You better believe God is going to use that event and reconcile the world. So men and women, we're going to go into communion right now. When you hold that cracker that represents his broken body and you hold that cup that represents his blood for you and the person doing the insulting, let's ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to us if we are locked into any negative communication spirals. I mean, some of you in this room, it's just time to do something. It can't continue this way. It just can't. Somebody has got to take the first step. And that is the spiritual ones. Blessed are the peacemakers. They're the sons of God. So I'm going to pray for you and I'm going to pray for myself. It's a dangerous prayer. To say, God, are there any relationships I just need to deal with? Enough is enough. Now listen, it takes two to reconcile. It takes one to approach another person. It takes two to reconcile. I'm not saying this is going to be successful. Uh, Paul is quite blunt when he says, so far as it depends on you be at peace with all men, it may not always work. But let us be a church that acts on the Holy Spirit. And I think we'll see a revival in ourselves that I feel God's presence as I move into a situation that's really hard and every part of my body wants to react against it. So let's now go into a time of communion and ask God to reveal to us if there's any relationships that we need to deal with and that we would be the change agent. Let me pray for us. Father, we come before you and we're humbled. We're humbled that while being reviled, you did not revile. While being insulted, you did not give an insult. Father, rather you gave a blessing. You looked at that crowd and you said, Father, forgive them. Father, I pray for the individuals in this audience. Very clearly they thought of a negative communication spiral. I pray that you'd give us courage a trust in the power of your spirit to work through our love, our kindness. So in this moment where the communion elements are before us, I pray that you would speak to each one of us. We invite you to do that as a church, as marriages, families, community members. We pray in your son's name for his glory. Amen.